Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 42, titled Demonstratively Speaking, wherein we discuss a certain speech habit of this feisty erstwhile vice presidential candidate. You betcha that one. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. I'm great. I want to start off today by reading a couple of listener emails. We get a lot of them, and I don't think you actually see any of them because you're not privy to the Lexicon Valley at Slate email address. Is that right? That's exactly right. Also, lazy and indifferent. So, yeah, add all those things together and you get me being totally in the dark. All right. Well, we are still getting mail about our Manic Pixie Dream Girl slash Magical Negro episode. Andy Holman wrote in to say that he believes it was you, Bob, who described Zoe Deschanel's character Summer from 500 Days of Summer as an MPDG. I think actually it was me who initiated that suggestion. In any case, he says that I agree that Summer is a fun, vibrant, and quirky character, but I thought the film's implication is that the main character, who was played, incidentally, by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, the main character was wrong to view her as someone who would complete his life and make it great. Doesn't she continually refuse to consider their relationship that of a couple? I think he's totally right, and I think I probably, if it was me, in fact, who did mention that movie and Zoe Deschanel, I fell victim to precisely what Nathan Rabin was cautioning us about, this overuse of the term, and in particular, applying it to a movie that is possibly a critique of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope. Mm -hmm. Which was the Zoe Kazan objection to begin with. So you, you may be right. I don't remember which of us asserted that because... It didn't happen today, and therefore I have almost no recollection of it. So, uh, sure, I'll let you take the blame. Thank you, Bob. That's very gracious of you. And thank you, Andy, for listening and for writing in. One other letter I wanted to read was from Beth Campbell, who says that you, Bob, gave her her first driveway moment. And she thinks it was in, well, I guess we should explain what a driveway moment is for those who don't know. I guess it's mostly a radio term. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, what happens when you're listening to something on public radio or elsewhere, and uh, you're listening in your car, and you get home, and you stay sitting in your driveway with the car running because you want to hear the denouement. 
and it's the highest praise that you can offer someone in radio, that their storytelling is so gripping that it keeps people from turning off the car and walking into their house. So she lives in Georgia, and she was listening to her local NPR affiliate outside of Athens, and she said that you did a piece, and this was in the earlier mid-90s, you did a piece on bowling at the White House. And she Mm -hmm. says, I can still hear the ladies laugh when you told her you wanted to come bowling. I sat in my driveway waiting to see if they were going to let you bowl. It's very nice. It was was about me being frustrated one day when I couldn't take my family in suburban Washington to go bowling because the leagues had snapped up all of the the lanes. There were no open lanes. And I was frustrated because I knew only like 16 miles from my house as the crow flies was a completely idle bowling alley situated (laughs) in the White House where President Nixon had installed it. So I set about to get invited to bowl in the White House. And it was a saga (laughs) about uh, political influence and the lack thereof in Washington, D.C. And that great laughter belonged to my congresswoman at the time, whose name, I'm sorry, escapes me. And uh, it was absolutely the most infectious, beautiful laugh you have ever heard. So, oh my goodness, thank you for uh, remembering. That was a long time ago. So did you get to bowl at the White House? Uh, You know what you can do, if you want to find out the answer to that, I have a website, my kind of personal website, In the upper right-hand corner, there's tiny type that says audio archive or something like that. Hmm. And if you click there, you can at bobgarfield.net, look for that audio archive tab, and you'll be able to locate the Bowling in the White House story and other quixotic adventures. Great. I can't wait to hear if you actually got to bowl at the White House. That sounds like a fantastic story. Okay, today's episode, I'm going to play for you, Bob, a montage that I put together of someone whose voice I think you'll recognize, and I want you to tell me if there's anything notable about these clips that I chose. He sounded that warning bell by those who are managing our money and loaning us these dollars, still in these waning days of the Bush administration, trying to forge that peace. So those dangerous regimes, those countries, sanctions on these countries, or to use those nuclear weapons. Americans are craving that straight talk. But even more important is that worldview that I share with John McCain. Okay, Bob, who was it and why did I play that montage? Well, it was Sarah Palin, Mm -hmm. the uh, former governor of Alaska and vice presidential candidate, demagogue who left the Dems agog when uh, she ran uh, with John McCain about uh, six years back. Why did you play it? I don't know, because she said nuclear, because she said loan instead of lend, because she was folksy. She's known for all of those things, yes, but that's not why I chose those particular clips, all of which were from, by the way, the 2008 vice presidential debate in early October 2008 with, of course, now Vice President Joseph Biden. She, in each of those clips and many other times during that debate, she used a demonstrative pronoun, this, that, these, or those. At the time, Mark Lieberman, who is a linguist at the University of Pennsylvania and runs the Language Log blog, he counted how many times she used demonstrative pronouns versus how many times Biden did. Now, incidentally, it's not so simple as counting up this, that, these, and those because that in particular has other uses. That very last clip in the montage, Palin says, But even more important is that worldview that I share with John McCain. 
But even more important is that worldview that I share with John McCain. Now, the first that, that worldview, that's a demonstrative pronoun. Mm -hmm. The second that, that I share with John McCain, that's what you would call a relative pronoun. It introduces a clause, what's called a relative clause. So Lieberman went through and he culled the that's that weren't demonstrative and found that Palin, in fact, used 65% more demonstrative pronouns than Biden. So pretty significant difference. A verbal tick, or are you going to surprise me by imputing some greater significance to this? Don't I surprise you in every episode of Lexicon Valley? And in some ways, actually, Mike, I I cease to be surprised at all by uh, some of the things that you do or say. And this includes but is not limited to uh, music composition and singing. You're not going to bait me into that trap again. (laughs) Actually, the truth is, Mike, I am charmed and delighted by all your songs that you've written for your uh, one-year-old son, Xander. I may tease you about them, but I think they're... uh, They're Mikey at your Mikeyest. That's sweet. Thanks, Bob. So I may or may not surprise you. Let's first review what some of the major functions of a demonstrative pronoun are. And there's a great paper from 1974 by the linguist Robin Lakoff called Remarks on This and That, where she runs through what she calls first the two major functions of a demonstrative pronoun. The first being, and the most obvious, is, in her words, to point to objects in the real world and to identify them as near to or distant from participants in a conversation. So do you remember, Bob, the Sasha Baron Cohen character, Ali G? Of course. Well, one of my favorite skits on that show, which I really loved, uh, involved Ali G and an agent from the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. And they're standing in front of a table on which is laid out a bunch of drugs, (laughs) like a big block of black hash, Pills, you know, weed, just all kinds of drugs. Ali G points to one bag of pills and says this. What's this little baby here? Uh, those right there is uh, MDMA, known on the street as ecstasy. Is there chemical indies that actually make you dance like a prick? I don't know that there's anything that makes you dance like a prick, although I can tell you I've seen some videos, some people that are using that stuff and dancing, and I guess that's the way to describe it. <laughs> Mike... I also am a huge fan of Ali G, but I just don't remember this episode. I don't remember where it goes, Uh, you know, after Dancing Like a Prick. (laughs) Well, I don't know if you noticed, but in that clip, all four demonstrative pronouns are used. And they're used in precisely the way that you would think they'd be used. Ali G is standing closer to the bag of ecstasy, and he uses this and these. The DEA agent to his left is standing a little further away, and he uses those and that. Yeah, it's a proximity thing. Yeah. It shows the relative proximity to the the thing that you're pronouning. Yeah, the thing that you're physically pointing out in the real world. And in fact, one of my favorite Ali G lines ever is also from this skit. He points to a bunch of the drugs on the table, and he says to the DE agent, so just to be clear, all of this is legal, what about this other stuff? And the DEA agent says, wait, wait, just to be clear, all of this is illegal. (laughs) It's fantastic. (laughs) So that's the first major way in which demonstrative pronouns are used. But there's another function of demonstrative pronouns that doesn't involve something that's 
physically in the room that you're trying to point out to somebody. And this is when you're having a conversation with somebody and you use a demonstrative pronoun to refer back to something that was previously mentioned. And I have an example for this too. This is perhaps my favorite line from one of my favorite songs by one of my favorite artists. Any guesses? Uh, no. no I mean, any guesses. <laughs> you have no inkling of my musical taste? Okay. Sugar, Sugar by the Archies. That is not the song. The song is the one that we're hearing right now, and these are the first couple of lines. Now the swan, it floated on the English river. of high romance it opened wide the swan it floated on the english river the rose of high romance it opened wide those are the first two lines bob of the traitor by leonard cohen from the album recent songs later on he refers back to this rose that he mentioned at the very beginning then long ago she said i must be leaving But keep my body here to lie upon You can move it up and down And when I'm sleeping Run some wire through that rose And wind the swan Right, that rose Mike, by the way, lovely song. Stunningly beautiful song. Wait, stop right now. It is a stunningly gorgeous, beautiful song. As much of Leonard Cohen's work is, I will stipulate, there's a lot of things about Leonard Cohen. He's poetic. He's a clothes horse, which made him unlike most of the other coffee house singers of his day, Mm -hmm. you know, wearing ragged blue jeans. Right. And... uh, you know, the only way I can describe him is uh, a certain kind of handsome I would characterize as ruggedly Jewish. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and Canadian. Yeah, and So, Canadian. you know, he was, uh, he was uh, sui generis. One of these days, we'll devote an entire episode of Lexicon Valley to a close reading of that song. And it will be worth it. It's just a fantastic song from a fantastic yeah, okay, I'll album. Let you know, I'll let you know when I'm taking vacation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but you see what he did there. He referred back to the rose that he had mentioned prior. He refers to it as that rose. Now, that is called often an anaphoric demonstrative pronoun. Anaphoric is a word that comes from a Greek root that just means sort of referring back to something that was mentioned before. Mm -hmm. Now, you could also have a demonstrative pronoun, by the way, that is what's called cataphoric. It refers to something that has not yet been mentioned. Like, for example, in this clip this very famous clip from the movie American Pie. Oh, and this one time at band camp, I stuck a flute in my pussy. Excuse me? What? You don't think I know how to get myself off? Hell, that's what half a band camp is. Okay, Mike, uh, first of all, I'm struck by your remarkable erudition and your ability <laughs> to <laughs> to summon, you know, a truly obscure but trenchant literary reference. Hey, I went from Ali G to Leonard Cohen, to Alison Hannigan in American Pie. You are a prince of eclecticism. There's no question about it. No question. So, yeah, I get that. You know, I think we could probably do an entire show on this one time 
as an introductory clause to storytelling, but be that as it may, yeah, that, I, I get it. That's a cataphoric demonstrative. Yeah, and perhaps a more pure example of the cataphoric demonstrative would be, for example, if I were to say to you, Bob, this is what we're going to do, and then I tell you what we're going to do. The this refers to something that I haven't yet referenced. Yeah, it's probably clearer, but then with that, you don't really get to uh, play that <laughs> transcendent piece of tape. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Okay, so those are the two main ways that we use demonstrative pronouns. But as Mark Lieberman noted with regard to Sarah Palin, there's a third way. Mark Lieberman wrote, there's something going on here that I recognize, referring to Sarah Palin's use of this third kind of demonstratives. He says, or at least I think I do, but I'm not sure that I know exactly what it is, and I don't believe that there's a standard term to refer to it. And it just so happens that he had been reading that week some obituaries of Paul Newman, who died just a few days before the vice presidential debate. And he noted an example of this third kind of use of demonstrative in a piece about Paul Newman by the film critic Peter Keogh. The relevant sentence goes like this. Truth be told, he, meaning Paul Newman, always had a knack for playing an asshole, whether an outlaw or a rogue or an outcast or a downright villain. That twinkle in his beautiful blue eyes could just as easily evince malice, irony, corruption, or anarchy as benevolence and beatitude. So you see, that twinkle in his beautiful blue eyes is not pointing something out that's physically in the room, nor is it referring back to something that Keogh has previously brought up. As Lieberman says... Neither the eyes nor the twinkle have previously been mentioned. But by using the demonstrative, Keogh brings the twinkle into the discourse in a way that makes it seem like comfortable common ground. Right. And, and it's exactly that, Mike. It is underlying something that is indeed present, but it's present in the collective consciousness and just need, need only be highlighted to be instantly recognized, which is exactly what Sarah Palin was up to. When she uses this or that, she is signaling that the thing that she is about to mention is something with which we are all familiar and may have some strong feelings about. You know, I was calling her a demagogue, but it's a very useful tool for a demagogue who by the mere use of a pronoun can trigger judgment and emotion from the audience. You know what I would call it, Mike? Not, uh, not anaphoric, not cataphoric. I would call it etherphoric. Yeah, and the question is, of course, Lieberman's counting up of pronouns is relatively anecdotal. It's a small sample size. It's one single debate. You know, the question then is, is this something that Palin does regularly? Does she do it consciously as a rhetorical strategy? That we probably can't figure out. But we'll get to more of Palin in a moment. I just want to parse out a little bit of the mechanics of how this third use of demonstrative pronouns works. As Lakoff points out back in the 1970s, it's often used where a simple article, A or the, would otherwise be sufficient. Usually, the article that it's replacing is A, the indefinite article. So, for example, I might say to you, Bob, sorry I'm late, a guy broke down on Canal Road and the traffic was backed up. Or I might say, sorry, this guy broke down on Canal Road. Another word that it often replaces is your. To use Lakoff's example, if I had had a sore throat over the past several days, you might ask me today, how's your throat? Or you might say, how's that throat? Lakoff suggests that the word that in a phrase like, how's that throat, comes across as colloquial, whereas your 
is more neutral. I would say something more intimate is happening by saying that throat, I'm evincing a sort of empathy. How's that throat that we both know is bedeviling you? So mark me down for more intimate. Bob, you in fact paraphrase exactly what Robin Lakoff says. I didn't read all of what she said, but I will now. She says, perhaps what's going on here is that by using your, the speaker explicitly calls attention to the fact that the infirmity is not his and thus distances himself from it. But that is vague on this question and hence intimacy creating. Yep. The first one puts it at least at one remove. The second one, it's a shared experience. Exactly. That's all I'm saying. Exactly. Now, I'm going to give you just another way in which this etherphoric demonstrative, as you called it, works, not by replacing an indefinite article or a pronoun like your, not replacing anything at all, but just being superfluously added. So I might say to you, Bob, I just saw the movie Her. Boy, that Scarlett Johansson, she sure has a sexy voice. I don't need to say that Scarlett Johansson, right? I could just say Scarlett Johansson. And in fact, if I was saying something that was more neutral, like Scarlett Johansson is in the movie Her, I wouldn't say that's Scarlett Johansson. She's in the movie Her. Yeah, well, this is the kind of Palin effect that I was referring to earlier. The use of the pronoun underlines that there's uh, you know, a set of emotions attached to what's going to follow that we're, you know, we're all aware of. Exactly. That's a shared experience. Lakoff calls these emotional demonstratives. Other people have called them camaraderie demonstratives because they foster a sense of solidarity, of sympathy, of intimacy, as you pointed out. So when I say that Scarlett Johansson sure has a sexy voice, I'm inviting you to agree with me, Bob, and in a sense, assuming that you will. When I say this guy broke down on Canal Road, I'm inviting you to commiserate with me and assuming that you're able to and that you've experienced such a frustration before. I know you live here in Washington. I know you know what Canal Road is. Right. And this gets right back to where we began, which was Sarah Palin inviting her audience to see these references as a shared experience, which we all wink, wink, nudge, nudge, understand. Well, you really just want to keep taking it back to Palin, don't you? <laughs> well, it's where it all started. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. We're getting there. Okay. All right. I mean, I, I'm willing to hold off my uh, repalinization program. Uh, <laughs> just let me know when you want this to come back around to the beginning uh, for, you know, narrative tidiness. Just just let me know. I'll let you know when the uh, palinization reclamation is about to happen. <laughs> so I'll just point out one more observation by Lakoff, which I think sums this up pretty nicely. She says that in this use of the demonstrative pronoun, the speaker and the addressee are assumed to share a previously built up reaction. So the subject must be one that is culturally or idiosyncratically assumable as well known. And she says that in a sense, doing this is a means of saying, we share this. We're in this together. I'm just stunned at my capacity to anticipate based on a few words in the beginning of, uh, of an episode where it's all going and to... Uh you know, sort of solve the episode uh, in the 16th minute. You know, I'm just saying. <laughs> You're good. You're good. You are really sharp today. All right. Let's, let's take this back to Palin, can we please? Oh, yeah. So earlier this year in the Journal of Sociolinguistics, a couple of linguists from Stanford University, Eric Acton and Christopher Potts, published a paper called That Straight Talk, Sarah Palin and the Sociolinguistics of Demonstratives. So apparently Mark Lieberman wasn't the only one who noticed her use of demonstratives. They wanted to go about 
quantifying her use of demonstratives to determine if she, in fact, uses them more than other people like her, which is to say other political pundits on TV and in particular on Fox News, where Sarah Palin makes a lot of appearances. So they went through four Sarah Palin appearances from each of four different Fox News shows. The O'Reilly Factor, Hannity, On the Record with Greta Van Susteren, and Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace. So a total of 16 appearances by Sarah Palin. They then compared her demonstrative pronoun use to 32 other people who made appearances on those same shows who were not Sarah Palin. And when they looked at those 32 people, they realized that 30 of them were men. Only two of them were women. So they then got 16 additional appearances on those same four shows by women. So they now had a total of 48 additional interviews by non-Palin people on those Fox shows. And they found when they counted up the demonstrative pronouns, and to make it a little bit easier, since they were essentially doing this by hand, they looked at only the demonstrative pronouns that introduced a phrase. So, you know, this chair, that black microphone, the phrase could be five, ten words long, it could be just two. They counted 355 demonstrative pronouns by Sarah Palin across those 16 appearances. Now, if you were to extrapolate to 48, you might imagine that 1,000 or thereabouts demonstrative pronouns would be found in the non-Palin interviews. Well, you might, but I don't, because (laughs) if the number weren't actually much lower, you wouldn't be telling this story. So go ahead. (laughs) That's true. The number, in fact, is 462. So Palin, it appears, is really off the charts when it comes to demonstrative pronoun use. And they found that it was disproportionately the kind of demonstrative pronouns, the very kind that you call etherphoric, and that other people call either emotional, Mark Lieberman calls them affective demonstratives, AFF, which I think is also a good term. Okay, I got a question for you. Yeah. You may recall that early on, I dismissed these Palin demonstratives as a verbal tick, I guess an unconscious habit. But is it? Is there any sense of this being malice aforethought, that it is a uh, arrow from the quiver of demagoguery that she has embraced? Uh, I'm not sure. I think I just mixed about four metaphors, but uh, <laughs> I'll just stay with them. Or, you know, just something that she does. Does either researcher weigh in on that? They do, in fact, weigh in on this. I'll just quote from the paper. They say that Palin's use of demonstratives is so frequent and so strongly skewed towards these emotional, these etherphoric demonstratives, quote, that her speech constantly presupposes this rich sense of commonality and perspectival alignment. They talk about some of her other speech affects that make her seem folksy, right? The dropping of G's, the use of certain terms like heck and shucks and darn. And they actually say, this is a bit speculative, I would assert, but they say, we think demonstratives are just one of the many devices that Palin uses to achieve these ultimately divisive effects. The reason they say that her speech affects are ultimately divisive 
is that they note that depending on which side of Palin's politics you're on, you view these speech affects as either warm or phony. So they say, for those who share her outlook, these gestures strengthen the social connection they feel. For those who do not share Palin's outlook, these gestures are a constant affront, a barrage of failed, offensive, or otherwise undesirable presuppositions and undue familiarity. Those who are aligned with her political and cultural attitudes hear her tone as genuine and warm, whereas those who disagree with her views hear her style as disingenuous and untoward. Yeah, I know people like that. (laughs) Some of them I'm related to by self. But listen, Mike, uh, you get to play some clips for me. So I want to play one for you. Uh, this was not done with malice aforethought. It just kind of dawned on me as we're talking about this. But there is, from that very same election season, a- another candidate, in fact, the head of Palin's ticket, who used a demonstrative presumably to diminish the guy who turned out to be the winning candidate, uh, a guy named Obama. Uh, do you remember this moment? It was an energy bill on the floor of the Senate, loaded down with goodies, billions for the oil companies, and it was sponsored by Bush and Cheney. You know who voted for it? You might never know. That one. You know who voted against it? Me. That one, he says. And I think this is a demonstrative trifecta, Mike. It's about proximity. That one right there where I'm pointing, and I think he was, it's anaphoric because he is referencing the kind of topic at hand that we're all familiar with. And then it is also, to use my coinage, etherphoric, because it's just flatly condescending, condescending like a parent talking about a wayward child and probably music to the ears of McCain's bass. The Oxford English Dictionary would very much agree with you, Bob, because the OED cites the phrase, that one, as a phrase that has historically been used disparagingly of women and has examples from Thackeray in Vanity Fair onward. So I think you're totally right. And it strikes me that that one is a kind of demonstrative trifecta. (laughs) Great. So McCain won $26.50 on his $2 bet, but... He lost the election. (laughs) All right. If you want to write to us about this, that, or the other thing, you can at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Please follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley and subscribe to our feed in iTunes. You can find us by searching for Lexicon Valley in the iTunes store. And I want to thank Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mike, are we done here? Yep, we're done. Well, then, that is that. Later, Gator. Stanley, see this? This is this. This ain't something else. This is this. From now on, you're on your own.